One of the reasons that the book of Isaiah was, was written was because the people of Israel continually struggled with false gods. They, they seemed to have a propensity of following their neighbors, uh, falling into false, the worship of false gods. They were continually being drawn away by their surrounding worldly influences. And, and Isaiah was simply reminding them of who the true God was and the necessity, their necessity of following him. And I think this is the Bible's primary concern for any of its readers, including you and me, that we know the true God. Personally, that we actually know this God, our creator. In the study of systematic theology, one of the first things that you study is the doctrine of God. Theologians call this theology proper. And the reason it's such an important study is, is because if we get God wrong, we get a lot of things wrong. If you have a basic misconception of God, then you'll have a basic misunderstanding of his universe, including you and your part in this universe and those in your life that you interact with. Your misunderstanding of God will result in relationships that aren't what they should be. If your understanding of God is off, you'll misunderstand the purpose of your life. You'll misuse your life and tend to abuse the lives of others around you. You'll believe that you ought to be the center of the universe and that uh, everything ought to revolve around you. And when you encounter someone who thinks just like that, what happens? Whenever two gods meet, there's a problem. And this is what happens in human relationships all the time. So getting God wrong is the biggest mistake anybody can make. The Bible was written so that we wouldn't get God wrong. He is revealed to us clearly here on the pages of Scripture. This is the study of theology. We must have a proper theology. In order to have a proper theology, we must study theology proper. And so today's sermon will be from Psalm 119, verse 89. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to that, that verse, Psalm 119, verse 89. And we're going to see theology proper in its simplest form. And of course, theology proper is never simple, but it's revealed in simple forms like this verse. Let me read it for you. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now you might think, well, this uh, seems like it's a verse about God's word, not about God himself. But uh, in the original language, this verse has two propositions instead of one that we see in the English language. In English, we read the singular point of the eternality of God's word, right? That's what it looks like. That's what we read. Um, and that is true. But there is another proposition that comes into view clearly when we look at the Hebrew language. And it is that the eternality of God is matched only by the eternality of God, of God's word and God's uh, eternality himself. So this is how the verse literally reads in the Hebrew language. Forever are you, O Lord. And the second proposition, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So we have two propositions in verse 89. I'm going to focus on the first proposition. You are eternal, O God. I'm going to focus on this proposition because in this proposition we can learn about God himself, particularly the eternality of God. God is eternal. Most of us would say, yeah, I learned that in, in primary Sunday school. That's basic. Yeah, but what does it mean? What does it mean that God is eternal? 
Well, I hope to explain that to you today in clear terms, uh, although we are, you know, restricted by our finite understanding of things. But let me begin to explain the eternality of God by uh, this point, and that is this. God is a unique being. That's our first point. God is a unique being. He is in a singular class. There is no one else in his class. The word forever in verse 89 communicates this. Only God is forever. His word goes with him. No, it teaches God's eternal nature. And it includes, first of all, the idea of being infinite. Being eternal includes the idea of being infinite. And, of course, there is only one infinite Space we know to be very large, very big. We have not yet, as humans, been able to reach its boundaries. But the universe isn't infinite. How do we know the universe isn't infinite? Well, because it's created. There's an end to it. And so we know by looking at the universe as large as it is, it is not infinite. It is finite. There's only one who is finite, and that is the creator of the universe. In fact, Psalm 90, verse 2 says this, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So looking both directions as far as you can, that's where God is. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now I'm going to try to explain this to you, and in order to do so, I'm going to have to use some bad English. So bear with me, all right? Follow me as I say these things. God was never nothing and never will be. God was never nothing and never will be. And of course, this is different than everything else in existence. Everything else was nothing at one point. Everything else didn't exist at some point in time. All past generations, for example, no longer exist. Everything in existence, everything but God, has a beginning and an end. God was before anything and will be after everything. We can't really comprehend the idea of eternality, of being infinite, because we are completely finite. And that is outside of our understanding, outside of our experience. All human existence is bookended by birth and life, right? Well, what's on the other side of that? That's the infinite. That's where God resides, on the other side of our existence. Now, think about the idea of eternality. If you were eternal, if you were eternal, but not infinite, where would that leave you? I'll tell you where it would leave you. Bored to insanity. You would be bored literally to death if you were eternal, but not infinite. Let me try to explain this to you. I'm reading a book right now called The Endurance. It's a story of, a, of an expedition of a crew of 28 men who attempted to cross the Antarctic continent back in 1915, 1916. Um, but they were trapped by an ice flow and spent a year on a very small island of ice about the size of a football field. All right, think of that. Their diaries describe their diminishing mental health because of the monotony of nothing and nothing to do on this tiny ice island floating around in a sea of perpetual winter. These guys were going nuts because there was nothing to do. They weren't infinite. They were finite. They had a limit to what they could endure and what they could take. People we know go crazy in solitary confinement only after a very short while. But because God is infinite, there is never an end to his personal interest. 
He created anything before there was nothing. He never tires of being with only himself or existing forever, even in solitude. So before there was anything, God was. So the concept of eternal includes the idea of being infinite. It also includes the idea of being immutable. Now, immutable is just a theological word for unchanging. God never changes. That's part of his eternal character. And, of course, there's only one that never changes. Everything else we know changes. Even what we consider to be the most stable things change. What's the most stable thing that you're aware of besides Uncle Fred? Who changes, even though he doesn't seem like he ever does? Stars. Are stars fairly stable in your mind? They change every single day, as does our own star, the sun. Every single day it burns off gases. It's different than it was yesterday. And we fall into the same category of created things. We are different than we were yesterday. For example, we have less time to live than we did yesterday. We change. But God is eternally infinite and immutable. He never changes. He doesn't have limitations like you and I have. Listen to Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old, that's a human way of saying a very long time ago when nothing existed. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. That's an amazing picture of God. The Bible is full of support of God's infinitude like this. It's full of God's immutability like this. Genesis 21, for example, Moses even called God by the name of everlasting God. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That's his name. Not only is it his nature, but it's his name. In the Bible, God refers to himself in many different terms that we finite beings can partially understand. Words like everlasting, eternal, ancient of days, and so forth are attempts at communicating the, God's eternal nature to us. He's infinite. He's immutable. The prophet Isaiah tried when he said this, For thus says the, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity... Have you ever thought about what that means, inhabiting eternity? What does that mean? Is that a quality of existence, a length of existence? Inhabiting eternity. And then listen to what God says about this. I, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So God is knowable. He's not just transcend, transcendent. He's eminent. He's knowable. He's here. And it's not only scripture that argues the eternal nature of God. Our reason argues the same thing. In order for there to be anything, there had to be something. When you go out into the backyard and you see a mess, what do you say? Who made this mess? We know that it didn't happen by itself. Somebody's responsible. Either it's Fido or Johnny. One of the two. So we know just intuitively something doesn't happen out of nothing. Something requires something else. 
And so that something is the eternal God described here in verse 89, from whom all things came. Anything must come from something. And so if there was something before there was nothing, that something has always existed. It must to have existed because there was nothing there before. If there was something before there was God, then God is secondary, and we know he's not. If something existed before God, if God is not eternal, that's another way of saying God is not eternal, then that, that, whatever that was that was before God supersedes him. And so our reason tells us that, this, that the existence of anything proves God's eternal existence. The reason we are here is because God is eternally existent. He is a unique being, and he holds unique attributes. Listen to these attributes, and there are a lot, by the way, but I'm just going to mention a few um, for your benefit. We have a unique being with unique attributes, again, playing off the idea of the eternality of God in uh, verse 89. First, I want you to think about eternal wisdom. You might think, well, humans possess wisdom. But yes, but not eternal wisdom, right? Not infinite, immutable wisdom, which God possesses. After the Apostle Paul had described the gospel to the, to the Christians in Rome, he, he spent 11 chapters describing the amazing holiness of God, the amazing justice of God, the amazing grace and goodness of God in Christ. And then on, at verse 33 on chapter 11, when he's closing this doctrinal section, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. No kidding. How is an infinitely holy God able to embrace sinful man? The gospel is how. And it took some substantial wisdom, in fact, eternal wisdom, to pull it off. How unsearchable, Paul continues, are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's eternal wisdom. Think about this. All things are presently known to God. Theoretically, you and I grow in knowledge and wisdom progressively, right? That's how it's supposed to happen. As we get older, we become wiser, they say. We are told with gray hair comes knowledge and insight, wisdom. But with God, that's not the case. He's always known these things. There's never been a time when God didn't know these things. His understanding is completely present. His knowledge never changes. His mind is never growing. His, his understanding is always what it has always been. He's never surprised. He never learns anything. He never becomes smarter the older he gets. This is different than us. In fact, we have theologians called open theists now. Um, I hesitate to call them theologians, but um, they try to define God in ways that we would find blasphemous. But they try to tell us that God isn't eternally wise. He's just lived so long that he knows a lot, which means he's been learning as he goes. And that's not what we believe the Bible teaches about God's character, his nature. We believe and teach that he's eternally wise. He's always been this wise. He's never changed in this wisdom. He's immutable. Whatever God has done in time, he's always known. Peter tells it like this in 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And what we're learning here from Peter 
is that the difference of time duration, years and days, short, long, etc., are all the same in God because everything is present to him. There is no past with God. There is no future. There's only present with God. He is outside of time and around time. All is the same to God because it's eternally present. But God condescends to us to try to help us with these things and these concepts by telling us stuff like this in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We, we can kind of get a handle on that as we think about God's eternal wisdom, God's eternal existence. And of course, they're, they're written for our benefit to give us a more clear picture of God himself. But God always is. You remember what, what he told Moses his name was? You remember what Jesus called himself in John 8? I am. That's a strange name. It's a strange self-description. I am, which means I presently am. I exist in the present. I don't exist in the past or the future. I'm always in the present. Which is why prophecy is no big deal to God. He's simply describing his present. If, if you and I were to say, hey, Donald Trump is the President of the United States, we would go, yeah. But if we were to say that 15 years ago, we would have said, yeah, right, Donald Trump. <laughs> right? God can say things prophetically that are in his present but are in our future. It's not, it's not complicated for him. He's just describing the present tense, which kind of is hard for us to get our minds around. He is eternally wise. Next, an attribute of God is that he is eternally powerful. He has infinite power. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says something about his eternal power. Paul said for his invisible qualities, that's God's, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So somehow by this creation, we can clearly perceive God's eternal power and his eternal wisdom. How so? It says that creation displays this. How might we understand it? Was anybody awake last night at three? Yeah, was any, I should ask this. Was anybody asleep at three? I actually talked to a guy in the first service and said, yeah, what, what are you talking about? Last night at three o'clock uh, was a spectacular display in Yakima. Uh, I'm a light sleeper anyways. Um, but this was serious furniture moving in the skies, loud crashes of thunder, lightning all over the place. In West Valley, it was hitting every 15 seconds. And I could see it and hear it, and it was impressive. You know, I've seen a lot of fireworks show on 4th of July and so forth, and they all are somewhat impressive, but they all look the same after a while, right? And we saw that last year. Same thing. This was a little different than that, wasn't it? I mean, why is it that we can't produce what we all witnessed last night if you were awake? What is it? It's called this, God's eternal power. And the interesting thing is the lightning and the thunder and the noise and the, and the rain 
wasn't necessarily directly his eternal power, but it came from his eternal power. He created the conditions that allowed for that lightning storm. He produced what was required for lightning and thunder and rain to take place. His eternal power created the atmosphere, the environment in which the atmosphere resides, the earth upon which the atmosphere turns. He created that that's eternal power. The lightning storm is a consequence of his eternal power. It's just a sign of it. His eternal power is on display in creation. Nothing has changed about God. He is immutably powerful, immutably wise, infinitely wise and infinitely power, powerful. He isn't getting older and losing his mental faculties. His strength isn't diminishing. He is just like he has always was in the beginning, which was not his beginning. And then another attribute or attributes that I should say, I'm going to wrap up his attributes with this. He is eternally good and merciful. Eternal goodness and mercy. This is particularly important to you and I. Psalm 119 verse 90 says it like this, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. This faithfulness described here in verse 90 is really a description of His goodness and mercy. His mercy and goodness endures to all generations. We read this in other places, His steadfast love endures forever. God never tires of doing good, showing mercy. Psalm 103 verse 17, listen to this profound verse. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. It never ends. God's goodness towards you, his mercy towards me, will never come to an end. No matter how many bazillion years you exist, his mercy and goodness remains. Isn't that good news? We don't have to fear that someday we'll wake up and God will change his mind about these things. He'll always be merciful. He'll always be loving. And he'll always shower his people with these things. Your eternal happiness is one of God's primary concerns. We could say that if God ever stopped blessing us with his goodness and mercy, he would stop being God. Because it's part of his nature. It's part of his eternal nature, his infinite nature. He is unchanging in this way or in any way. And this, of course, leads to the third and final point. This unique being who has unique attributes is a glorious benefactor. And that's what I want you to hear this morning, friends, that the eternality of God, his immutable, infinite nature and the attributes that go along with that aren't just a study of theology in themselves for the studying sake so you can win trivia games. They actually have some purpose in your daily life. I'm going to try to flesh this out a bit for you by going through two basic points here. First is this. This glorious benefactor, he governs 
his creation. He governs his people. God perfectly governs us. What's a governor do? A governor oversees his land, his people. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read that, that Jesus Christ himself is overseeing, is upholding this universe. He's governing this universe by the word of his mouth. He's holding your life together. Isaiah 45, 7, we heard it this, read earlier this morning. Joe read, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all this stuff. He is governing his creation. He's governing your life and my life. Psalm 119, we've studied this here now for a while. We've repeatedly come across verses that tell us that he's governing us through his word. He guides and directs through his word. He faithfully, patiently, lovingly governs you through his word. He has always done this. Of course, part of governing includes his judging, right? A good governor is a good judge. And he always does this justly, rightly, for all people. Moses understood this when he quoted Abraham who said, in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer is, of course. He is good and merciful. He is a great governor. So we see this all over Scripture. You, you can't hardly get through a book of the Bible where you don't see the, the benefactor judging, governing well. He also is for the second point, he, his benefactor results in his giving. He's a giver. And what's he give? He gives so many things. First of all, he gives life. You're currently here listening today, able to comprehend what I'm saying, because God has given you life. And it includes the ability to comprehend human language. Right? He gave an immortal spirit, not only life, but he gave an immortal spirit to go with that life. He could have created you without that immortal spirit. Some teach that we don't have that, but Ecclesiastes 12, 7 clearly states that we have an immortal spirit given to us by God. Even though none of us is inherently immortal, we have a derived immortality. It's given to us by God. You are immortal simply because God has given you that gift. Along with your physical life, your ability to breathe and think and fellowship, God has given you an immortal spirit that lives on. He's a giver. On top of this, this benefactor gives grace. He gives grace. You know what grace is, right? It's something you don't deserve. <laughs> and he gives it to all of us. God is a giver. We know John 3.16 fairly well, right? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave himself for you. What a benefactor. What a glorious benefactor. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul said, who saved us, God who saved us 
and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because that wouldn't cut it, but because of his own purpose and grace, which, by the way, he gave to us in Christ before the ages began. Before there was anything, God had given you grace. You who didn't exist, grace that didn't exist, God had given it, purposed to give it to you who needed it desperately before the ages began, before one minute of time ever ticked off the clock, God had determined to give you grace because he knows you needed it, as do I. Now, you may be sitting here and saying, so what? Okay, God's eternal. He has some eternal attributes. That's interesting, but so what? Well, if, if you haven't come across a so what yet, that might impact your life, at least outside these doors. Let me share a few more things that I hope and have prayed that the Holy Spirit would, you know, send you out with. This being the first. So what that God is eternal, that he is a good governor, that he's a giver, that he has these attributes that are amazing. I would say this, first and foremost, we must know him. So what? You must know him. That's so what? You must know this God. You must have some connection with your creator. That's so what? It says in John 1.18 that God is unknown to mankind, and so Jesus came. God is unknowable unless he reveals himself and he has done so in Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to you most clearly, most powerfully in Jesus. Do you know him? Isaiah 57, 15. Again, let me read this for you. I just read it for you early, but let me read it for you with a new twist, new emphasis. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, this transcendent God, there's this transcendent God out there. Transcendent means it's beyond your ability to know. He's unknowable. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Listen to what this God says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also... If you got this open in your Bible, underline that. Very important words. <laughs> and also with him who was of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, God is noble through Christ. He makes it possible. You can know God, your creator. You can delve into the arena of the infinite. You can have a personal relationship with the infinite. <laughs> so first of all, all these truths, wonderful truths about the eternal God that we have here in verse 89, forever are you, O Lord, that God is knowable personally. Secondly, this information about God should impact how we spend our time. 
since he created the time that we have. Psalm 90, verse 12, the psalmist was talking about our relationship with God, and he says this, So teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. Knowing God ought to impact how you spend your time. Knowing God should change how you think about your day, how you think about the first four hours of your day, how you spend the middle of the day, how you end up your day, should be impacted by your knowledge of God. Does what you know about God change anything about your day? Or is your only interaction with God come on Sunday morning when you're sitting here listening to me yelling at you? Does your knowledge of God have anything to do with your life? Friends, we only have so much time allotted to us to live. There is an end to our life. Are you living for something that lives beyond your life, that goes beyond your life, something infinite, something eternal? Are you living for God and his kingdom? Or are you spending your days, minute in, minute out, focused on something temporary, of no real eternal value. Knowing God, friends, should change how you think about your own time. All of human history, from Adam to the end, to the last person ever born, is but a drop in the ocean compared to the length of eternity. And yet so much rests on how we spend this short little island of time that we live on called life. Time is limited. Time is short. We don't know when we will leave the arena of time and enter the arena of forever. And we're convinced that life is frail. We all know people who have died recently. And these truths make it hard to laugh at sin. These truths make it hard to waste time as if we had an unending supply of them, of time, that is. We understand a little more clearly why Paul told the Ephesian church to redeem the time. Time is short. And then, forever. Our knowledge of God, this good, gracious, loving, and kind God, full of mercy, should impact how we spend our time. How are you spending your time as it relates to your children? Do they know the gospel? Do they know God? How about your neighbors and your coworkers? Friends, our, our friends and neighbors, children, face an uncertain future. They need to know God. Thirdly, to answer the question, so what? This knowledge of God, the eternal nature of God, should impact how we spend our resources, right? Let me read 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 for you. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, this thing called life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. It should impact how we spend our resources. How are you spending those things you see? How are you spending the gifts God has given you? Whether it's your time or your talents or your income. Is it, is it focused? Is it self-focused? As if you're the most important thing in the universe? Or are you spending your resources as if God's the most important thing in the universe? You remember Hebrews 11.25 when the author was detailing the benefits of following Christ. He, he brought Moses into our minds. And he reminds us that, that Moses had this thing figured out. Moses chose Christ ahead of all the pleasures of Egypt. Moses chose to spend his resources for the kingdom of God instead of on himself. He could have, because of his, his place in Egypt, he was the Pharaoh's son by adoption. He could have had anything he wanted in Egypt. He could have spent his entire life in a hot tub if he wanted. But it says he chose to struggle with the people of Israel. He chose Christ instead of the resources of Egypt. He knew God. Paul told Timothy, his disciple, that, Timothy, you brought nothing into the world, and guess what? You're not going to take anything out of the world. So spend your time wisely. Spend your resources wisely. It should impact how we spend our resources. Friends, you and I were made for eternity. You know that, right? Our end and result of life isn't just in this physical life we live. Only eternal things really satisfy. Only eternal things really truly draw our souls. This is why the psalmist in 73, 25 said, whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. Thomas Manton, 17th century pastor and theologian, said this, The whole drift of our religion is to call us off from time to eternity. Stop focusing on time and all the things that go with time, all those temporary things. The whole drift of our religion, Christianity, is to call us off of time to eternity, from this world to a better place. Christ came not to settle us here in a state of prosperity, nor to make this world our rest and portion, but to draw us up to God and to heaven. That's why Christ came. That's why we worship him. That's why we gather on Sundays. This isn't a social club. This is a group dependent on Christ, reminding one another of the necessity to look Godward daily. Manton said it perfectly. And fourthly, the fourth answer to so what is that this eternal God has designed and created us for fellowship, for fellowship, for communion, for friendship to use it another way. I think most of us enjoy this and do this naturally with one another. Most people enjoy relationships and they thrive in community and kind of wither when it comes to isolation. But human relationships are critical to us. We were built for them. 
Do you know that we are created in the image of God, right? That's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And of course, this means we're something like God. And if we are created in the image of God, then we must have some kind of built-in design to need and enjoy relationships because God is in eternal relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit. If we are created in His image, we are built and designed for that kind of relationship. Deep, intimate, real relationships. Particularly with those who are following Christ. Are you in those kind of relationships? Or are you satisfied on your own out on this island called self? You'll go crazy there. Friends, we were designed to be in fellowship with others, particularly other believers. Hence, all the one another's of the New Testament. How are you fulfilling that design? How are you fulfilling that design to be an intimate, deep, spiritual relationship with other people? Barry thinks it ought to be in small groups. What do you think about Barry's opinion? I think it's probably God's opinion. Read the New Testament. It's all over the place. We are created for the kind of relationships that Barry was defining, describing. Are you in those? Or is this day, this hour, the extent of anything religious, spiritual, godly in your week of relationships? And of course, our design to be in human relationship is simply a picture of ultimately that relationship we should have with God. A deep, personal, intimate relationship with God. So that we might enjoy Him. A relationship that is eternally fascinating. You know, some people think, I'm going to get bored of playing a harp someday when I get to heaven. This harp thing can only go on so long. I know there's a lot of strings, but after a million years, you're going to know the harp. Then what? Well, we're going to be in fellowship with an infinite God who will never run out of things to show us about himself. And we will follow him around like puppies, I guess. <laughs> Going, wow, this guy's great. Eternally fascinating, eternally inspiring, eternally beneficial, eternally motivating. Can't wait for the next thought, the next encounter. And I, I got to tell you, that relationship with God begins here and now. You don't have to wait until you stop breathing. That God is the God of the present. He desires that relationship now. And somehow he has combined a relationship with other believers and with himself to be almost one and the same. If we have been created in God's image, he designs us to be in relationship with one another and with him. We're going to close our service today by singing a well-known song, How Great Thou Art. We can sing it blindfolded.
and sometimes I think we sing it thoughtlessly. Well, I want you to pay attention to the words that you're singing here in a moment. There's a lot of great words, particularly the third stanza. And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. God sent the, third, the second person of the Godhead to die. To die for sins that he didn't commit. He sent him to live a life, a perfect life that we could not. God sent his son to do these things. God sent himself to do these things. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Let's pray.